our communion Sunday. And I, I, I hope you'll be able to stay afterwards for um, fellowship dinner together. Whether you brought anything or not, uh, we would love to have you. There we are. You know, throughout the scriptures and throughout the history of the Israelites, God always told them to remember. Make sure you look back. Make sure you remember those watershed moments that happened in the history. Remember that you don't forget that what I did for you, how I led you out of slavery. I led you out of Egypt with a strong hand and my mighty right arm. He, he told them as they were to go into the promised land after they, you know, they made a lot of mistakes along the way. They paid a severe price, but now they're about to go into the promised land. And God said to them through Joshua that the priests were to go in first. And as soon as the priest, as soon as it says the foot of the priest touched the water, God stopped the water of the Jordan. And it built up at a place called Adam. Um, I always thought to myself, imagine trout fishing downstream. What happened? <laughs> um, but God said, as the priests are to stand there, collect 12 stones. This is actually what it says. Uh, let, let me read what God says as opposed to what I say. In Joshua 4, 4 to 7. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask you in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. God also tells us to remember what he has done for us. We are also called by Jesus. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, when he took the elements, when he took the cup, of course, he was filling into the Jewish Passover, much different than what we are doing. But he said these words, remember. We are to remember how God has delivered us out of darkness and called us into his glorious light. And so the title for today is In Remembrance of Me. I'd ask that you would stand with me, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's first pray. Oh, Father, again, we thank you for what you've done here already, Lord God. We thank you that we have come into your presence without fear without worry, but with the surety of a yes, the surety of the golden scepter handed out to us because we are your children. And Lord, so we come to you now with the expectation of a yes, the promise of a yes, that you would show us Christ in the preaching of your word. That we know what, what we know not, you would make known to us. What we have not, you would give to us. And what we are not, you would make us. We ask it for the glory of Christ and Christ alone. Amen. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A very famous passage. We know it, probably know it even by heart, maybe not know the address, but we know the words. It says, on the night he was betrayed, I received, to, I, but I received, but for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that he had this from a revelation from God. Obviously, Paul was not at the Last Supper. He wasn't there. So God divinely revealed to him the events of that night. And he says, for I give you, on the night that he was betrayed. John MacArthur, in his commentary, says this. This most beautiful and meaningful of Christian celebrations was instituted on the very night the Lord was betrayed and arrested in the midst of the world's evil. God established his good. In the midst of Satan's wickedness, God plants his holiness. Oh, I like that. But no matter what's going on, there is a God who stands behind. There is a God of the ages. No matter how dark it may seem, God is at work. God is working and moving. He never stops working, the scripture tells us. And so we see in the feast here that the bread is symbolic of Jesus' perfect sinless life and the cup is symbolic of Jesus' shed blood for us. It is also the catalyst for the new covenant. And that's really what I want to focus on today is the word covenant. The word covenant. God is a God of covenant. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines covenant as this. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Well, that's what a covenant is. We most probably know The great covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, where he split the pieces in half and God alone went through. We know that in an ancient covenant, they would do that. Both parties would pass through the blood and and essentially say, may it be done to me what is done to his animals if I do not live up to the covenant. And of course, God himself went through. Abraham never did a foretaste of what God was going to do through Jesus Christ. But God is a God who works through covenant. And we're going we're gonna, to, it may seem a little academic today. I hope it doesn't to you. We're going to use some theological terms, but they're good. We should know these terms. Do we need to know them, uh, you know, be able to spout them? It's good to know what God has done. It's good to know some terms. I wouldn't necessarily say let's go out, you know, and evangelize using these terms right away. But it's good for our own personal edification. It's good for us to know how God has worked. Uh, uh, this morning in prayer, somebody prayed that we would not just know, we would not just know about God, but we would know God. Don't let this just 
be something we know about God, but let it be something that we know about God which transforms us. That the more I really know about God, the more I should know God. The more I know about God, the more I should know God. God is a God of covenant. And God made a covenant long before the world was ever created. Before the heaven and earth were created, God made a covenant within Himself. We call it the covenant of redemption. I know you've heard this before, but it's good to be reminded. We're told to remember. A covenant of, the covenant of the redemption is the agreement made between the members of the Trinity in order to bring us salvation. And we find allusions to it in several biblical texts. Under the covenant, the Father plans redemption and sends the Son in order to save His people. The Son agrees to be sent and do the work necessary to save the elect. We read that in John. And the Spirit agrees to apply the work of Christ to us by skilling us unto salvation. Ephesians 1 tells us that, a plan from the fullness of time. So what's that mean? This is how great God is. This is how much God loves us. That before He ever created the world, that He knew that just by definition of being created, we're lesser than God. Right? Just by definition. God alone is holy. God is separate from everybody else. Nobody can come close to God. Nobody can come close to God in His attributes. And quite frankly, nobody can come close to God in proximity. Outside of God doing something. And God knew that man, being lesser than God, was going to fall. And so before the world was ever made, God put into place a covenant within his own self between the Father, Son, and the Spirit that this man who is going to rebel against us, we're going to redeem. We're going to make a way for him not to be lost forever. God, in creating the world, gave to Adam what theologians call the covenant of works. The covenant of the works is also known as the Adamic covenant. It's the covenant that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden where Adam would maintain his position with God through his obedience to the command of God to multiply and fill the earth, to subdue it, and to also not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's exactly what God said. Look at what it says in Genesis 1, 28 to 30. And God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree that with seed and its fruit you shall have them for food. And, every, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Jump over to Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, should make sure, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Why is this so important? Why is this so important that God gave this covenant to Adam? And why does it matter to me? I wasn't in the garden. I didn't eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. I didn't do that. So why do I got to suffer for what Adam did? Well, very simply, because in theological terms, Adam has what we call 
federal headship. He is the representative of all humanity. Who is the representative of the United States? The President of the United States. He represents us. He goes to other countries. He represents the United States of America. In his absence, an ambassador represents the United States. Adam is our representative for all of humanity. Doesn't matter where you live on the face of the earth. It doesn't matter your ethnic makeup or anything like that. Adam is your federal head. What Adam has done gets passed down to us. It's what we call federal headship. And it's clearly in the Bible. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam is our representative. What Adam has done, he suffers the consequences. And it caused us to be in a position that we ourselves would sin. We have the sin of Adam, original sin, and we have our own sin that we do. And so God made a covenant within himself, made a covenant with Adam, the first human, Adam and Eve. And he said, this is how it's going to work. Adam had no options in it. Well, he had an option. Either do it and live or don't do it and die. Adam chose Death over life. He did not die physically. Eventually he would. He died spiritually. There was a gulf between God and man. But God, because he made that covenant within himself, because God so loves his creation, because God so loves his people and his church, and he made this covenant before the world was ever created, God said there's going to be a new federal headship. A new person was going to come on the scene. A new representative was going to come. And he tells us that in Genesis 3, 15. You know this well, church. I tell you this, Genesis 3, 15, hands down, without a doubt, is the lens in which to read the Scriptures. It is the lens in which to understand everything else that is spoken in Scripture is seen Through this lens, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It is what theologians call the proto euangelion, the first good news. God had a covenant within himself, God made a covenant with Adam. Adam blew the covenant, he didn't keep it. God says, but this covenant is greater than the covenant of Adam, so I'm going to come in to time and space, and it matters that he comes into time and space. This is why the virgin birth is so important. Why does the virgin birth matter? Well, because a spiritual holy being made a covenant with finite beings, and in order for that to happen, the holy, the infinite, has to invade the finite. Has to. Can't happen outside of it. No mere person, because they're just like Adam, could atone, but only God could satisfy his own wrath. 
And so God promised that there would be a new federal headship. And God enacts that in time and space. We need to understand that Jesus is the author of history. Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews chapter 1. He is the God of the ages, the God of history. Jesus is in charge of history. Jesus decides the beginning. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It starts with Jesus. It's going to end with Jesus. And then when we go to heaven, there's no more time. It doesn't exist, but exists for us here now. And God knows that unless He moves in time and space, if we were to die without God moving, we'd be lost to eternity. And so God comes into the world, makes a promise to send a Redeemer who will crush the head of Satan who brought into the world sin and death. It's what we call the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is this, is where God promises eternal salvation to man based upon the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is called the covenant of the grace because it is initiated by God due to no part and worthiness of man and is unmerited favor received from God. Understand I know we hear it. We need to remind ourselves. Jesus said, remember, we need to remind ourselves. We did nothing to bring salvation to ourselves. Nothing. We brought nothing to the table. What did we bring? Brokenness. Sin. That's what we brought. We brought it to the table and God said, that's all I need. I can work with that. I can take care of that. I have taken care of that. God moves graciously in the lives of His people through no worthiness of man. It is unmerited favor received from God. And the Bible tells us that in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. But the free gift, there's the, there it is, free, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many, for many. And if the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more... Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? It is God's grace. God coming into time and the space. That is, the, that is what the Christmas season is all about. That God invaded time and space. That God condescended down in the person of Jesus Christ. And this covenant of grace has been throughout history progressively Disclosed. Um, CARM.org, uh, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, uh, states this the manifestation of the covenant of the grace was progressively disclosed. It began in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned, and God promised a Redeemer. To Abraham, the promise to bless the nations. The covenant of the Ten Commandments given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And believers in the new covenant, Jeremiah, which is fulfilled in Christ in 1 Corinthians. 
So it's been progressively removed and revealed. And so God has given the covenant to Adam. He's messed it up. God promises a redeemer. He makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant at Sinai. And they enter the promised land. God does his thing. He punishes them and they're taken away in captivity. They come back. They build the temple. They build the city. And for 400 years, God is completely silent. God doesn't say a word, at least a recorded word that we have. But God made a promise. I'm going to make a new covenant. There's a covenant of the grace. And so what Paul tells us here, that at the Last Supper, and what we remember here today, is that God is a God who keeps His promise. God is a promise keeper. God said, I'm going to bring one who will crush the head of Satan, who will destroy sin and death, who will satisfy the wrath of God. And so when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper during the Passover, it's the new covenant. Look what it says in verse 24. And when he had given thanks... He broke it, that is the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, that's just not just, hey, you know, here's a piece of bread and, you know, let's have bread and let's eat. It's actually very important what Jesus is stating there. Jesus said, this is my body. Now, we know that Catholics take that to be literal. Lutherans are kind of trying to mix it all up. We understand it to be a symbol, that it's just it's a representative of something, which is what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, this is my body, take and eat. Like, why would he say that? He's sitting right there in his body, so why would he say, this is my body, take and eat? But it represents, it, it represents Christ's active obedience on our behalf. Christ's active obedience on our behalf. Christ lived for our righteousness. That's what the bread means. That's what the bread represents. Remember last week we did Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the seat of the ungodly or sits in the seat of the scoffers. And we said, we've all been there. I've at one point walked, stood, or sat. Christ never has. Christ always delighted in the law of the Lord. Jesus tells us very clearly in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. That's the covenant of Sinai and the covenant of works, by the way. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ's righteousness on our behalf. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus could not go to the cross until he had accomplished all that the law said to do. He couldn't. He said until all is accomplished. So our redemption is Partly because of Christ's active obedience. The only perfect person who ever lived. 
the only perfect person who ever lived. The only truly perfect and innocent person who has ever lived is Jesus Christ. That's part of our redemption. The second part is by Christ's passive obedience. Christ's passive obedience. Christ paid the penalty for, should I say, for our sin. For sin. That's the cup. Is that what Jesus said? Ephesians tells us this in Ephesians 1 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Jesus said at the Last Supper, in the same way, verse 25, also he took the cup after supper, saying, and Jesus said what was, he took, he didn't say what should normally be said at that point. It should have been the third cup, the cup of blessing. But he said, no, this cup is this what? He goes, this cup is. He totally changed what it was. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The disciples at this point still didn't understand. They still weren't getting it. Even Peter, of course, Peter sometimes didn't get it right away, right? Even in the garden where they came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword. And Jesus tells him to stop. Why? What did Jesus say? You remember? How else will the scriptures be fulfilled? You do this. Not that he could stop the scriptures, God's plan, but you understand what I'm saying. It says, how else will the scriptures be fulfilled? The new covenant is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And all that God did historically throughout time was pointing to this moment. The most incredible moment of human history is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of human history worked to that point. And from that point on, all of human history is working towards the return of Jesus Christ. And history will be no more. This is the new covenant. Things are going to be new. You are unable to. You cannot keep the law. You cannot keep the covenant works. You cannot do anything to save yourself. I have stepped in in time and space, and I am going to do it through my active and my passive obedience on your behalf. The Bible tells us this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus actively and passively gives us redemption. How is that done? How is that applied to me? It's propitiated and it is imputed. This is important stuff to know. Maybe not the word, but the understanding of how God worked in time and space. To propitiate means propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude. This is so important. 
so that he moves from being at enmity with us to being for us. Through the process of propitiation, we are restored into fellowship and favor with him. That no longer are we at war with God. Man's inclination of his heart was evil in every way, just as it is in the time of Noah. Doesn't it? Can't we just see that by looking at society? Against God. And God was against us. God's going to win every single time. Man cannot win. They tried it at the Tower of Babel. Psalm chapter 2 tells us that the kings of the earth will take their stand, they'll raise their fist at God. God's going to go, are you kidding me? And with one breath of his mouth, just as we read here in Isaiah, with one breath of his mouth, the wicked will be slain. They can't stand. There's an enmity between God and man. And God, because of his great love for you and for me, for his church, before the world was ever created, purposed in his own self to make a way for a redeemer. 1 John 2, 2 tells us this. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but all, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is not universal salvation, by the way. It's for anybody in the world who calls upon the name of the Lord in truth. That's who that means. Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. What an incredible thing. He is called the what? The Christmas story in Isaiah tells us what? He is the Prince of Peace. God comes to bring peace. We have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. And that's why we prayed before that we got, you know, we're not trying to wrench something out of your hand as if we got to, no. God is favorably disposed towards his children, towards you. He loves. The Bible tells us it's the Father's good pleasure to what? Give you the kingdom. Every blessing of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. It's not, well, you got to earn it. Kid, I did a John Oates right there. Right? You got to earn it. No, I don't earn it. I can't earn it. But I respond to it. I should respond to it by saying, you know what? I'm going to strive to live a life worthy of the gospel. Man, that's hard enough, isn't it? It's another reason God put the church together. You and I are to be in communion with one another, to help one another, to encourage one another. And when one of us is going off into the fire, we're to snatch them back from the flames. We're to build one another up and encourage one another to divorce yourself from the church, to step back and say, it's not important. I can come and go and treat it as I want. It's danger to your soul. That's a, that's a separate message. That's free. That one is free. But God has propitiated our sins. (coughs) Excuse me. For the wrath of God, we have peace with God. For the wrath of God is satisfied only with the blood of God. Again, Hebrews tells us, the scriptures tells us. Indeed, everything under the law, almost everything... Indeed, under law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God is a God of justice. 
Sin doesn't just disappear into the thin air and it's like nothing ever happened. Somebody has to pay the price. And Jesus did. And as Jesus propitiated, covered over our sins, made peace with God, something incredible happened. He imputed to us. Imputed means to reckon, reckon as, to credit, or assign. Jesus has imputed to us His righteousness. Look at what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's actually what's happened there is what's double imputation. So important theologically. Now you're sitting there going, do I really need to know that? I think as a believer you want to know that. You want to know what happens. That in Christ, He who knew no sin, perfect man, the perfect one, who knew no sin, became sin. How did he become sin? That on the cross, my sin, your sin, was placed upon Jesus Christ, and therefore the Father turned his face away. Our sin became on Christ. But it says that we might become the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God. And so then what does Jesus do? Jesus takes His righteousness and places it on us. He imputes, credits to our account His righteousness. And therefore, as it says in Psalm 1, though the wicked will not stand in the judgment, but the righteous will. Why? Because I understand it's not my righteousness. I've done nothing. I've done absolutely nothing. This is by the grace of God. It is the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. And God will only accept His own righteousness. There is no other righteousness other than God's righteousness. And He places that freely on His children. What an incredible God we serve. We should be an Man, how great is our God. How great and how loving is our God. And not only that, Not only out of God propitiating and imputing to us, He expiates for us. It means the removal of guilt through the payment of a penalty. The slate is wiped clean. The slate is wiped totally clean. You know your own heart. You know what you've done. You know the depths of your own guilt. I know my own. But the great thing about God is He removes guilt. That what was in the past, He says, you know what? It's in the past, as far as I'm concerned. There's consequences in the world, yes. But with me, that's gone. The Bible says, I think it's through the prophet Isaiah, that He throws it into His sea of forgetfulness. Can God forget? No, but He can choose not to remember. Right? He can choose not to remember. How many of us? No wonder Jesus said, you know what? You better watch it. Because the way you judge somebody, the standard you hold to somebody, that's the one I'm going to use with you then. Whew. We better be far more gracious. Not enabling, but gracious. But gracious because God has been so gracious to us. What God has done for us is incredible. As the late R.C. Sproul says, God in holiness satisfied the demands of holiness without compromising His holiness. Just think about that. Just take that and think about it. 
Meditate on that. God in holiness satisfied, satisfied the demands of holiness, His own demands, and without compromising His holiness, applied holiness to you and to I, you and me. This is what we're to remember. What God has done for us. We're to remember that God made a way for us to be His people. A people who were at enmity that He has brought near by the work of Christ on our behalf. And so forth as the Scriptures say in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is recovered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're blessed this side of heaven because we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's fantastic. How great it is to have the Lord. How great it is to be in His house. How great it is to know the forgiveness and the freedom of guilt and all of those things. But how greater will it be because of what Christ has done? It's not just to leave us in this good feeling state and even this struggling state of sin. I sin and I mess up and I'm going back and forth and I experience the redemption and hopefully I'm growing. And, and as, uh, as, as somebody said this morning, hopefully that tomorrow I have to repent just a little bit less because I'm growing in righteousness. But there's going to come a day, loved ones, the chief day of all of human history, of which Jesus Christ returns. And only, and only those who have placed their faith for the forgiveness of their sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, only those, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you genuinely asked the Lord God to forgive you of your sins? Are you striving to live a life that proves that true? If you are, you'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You may be able to fool us. Nobody will fool God on that day. Because the scripture tells us that it's before Jesus Christ that our hearts are laid bare and it's before Him of whom we must give an account. Nothing is hidden from His sight, the scripture says. Everything is laid bare before Him. We're not going to go there. We may go there in confidence, but it'll be a false one. May it never be said of any of us. But as we understand what God done, may we in true humility, in true saving faith, cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me. May we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Then you will be saved. For with the Mouth one confesses, and with the heart one is saved. And all that Jesus has done before the world was ever created culminates culminates in the fact that we will be with Him forever. And as Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus says, as you remember this, 
As you remember, and all that's incorporated in the idea of the bread and the cup and the new covenant, we what? We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And when he returns, his dwelling will be with his people and with his people only. May we be his people. May we be found faithful. May we be found having our lamps full and our wicks trimmed. May we be the ones who not compromise in this world. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. And the United States government has just recently made it clear they're gunning for the church in respect for Marriage Act. They're coming. And they have no shame about it. It is this truth of what Christ has done on our behalf that will cause us to stand, if we really believe, will cause us to stand in that day and know that even in that, the Lord is with me. May we be found faithful. Father, thank you for a redemption that is yours. It's not ours. Nothing that we've done We thank you that it's all of you. And Lord, we pray that in our hearts and our minds we truly would set apart the Lord Jesus Christ as holy. That we would be found faithful, that we would stand in the day because we're standing not in our own strength but the strength of Christ and on the work of what he's done for us. Lord, we ask that this would be so for the glory of your kingdom. Amen.